Hello, Gap Year Universe. I'm Julia Rogers. And I'm Margot Brookfield. Welcome to Gap Year Radio, the show that brings you information and inspiration to plan a life-changing Gap Year adventure. Today, you're going to hear from Michelle Zhang. Michelle is one of those incredible young people who's been planning and saving for her gap time pretty much for her entire high school career. Uh, And she ended up traveling through Central and South America during her gap time. It's pretty awesome. And I know you mentioned, Julia, did she receive the Travel Access Project grant? Was that part of her fundraising or what exactly is that that grant? Yeah, so Michelle actually started working and saving money for most of high school, but she also applied for and received the Travel Access Project grant, which is a fantastic mechanism to fund your gap year. Their applications usually open mid-spring and then they're awarded in the summer every year. And they're a few thousand dollars uh, to put towards any kind of travel experience. Uh, and the recipients come from all over the world. It's a really wonderful way to, to fund a gap year. So Michelle used some of that money to backpack in Colombia and Peru during her gap year. That is amazing. I think that it's often overlooked how many resources there are out there for gap year students um, and something that everyone should be very aware of the resources out there. So really excited to hear more about how she funded her gap year and made it happen. Definitely. And if anybody else out there wants to know what scholarships are available to you, you should check out gapyearassociation.org. They have a whole financial aid and fundraising site, um, webpage on their site, and it's a really great resource for seeing all the different scholarships that are out there. So um, I can't wait, Margot, for you to hear Michelle's story. She's an incredibly articulate person, and she had an amazing year. Very excited to hear more. All right, let's get started. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on Gap Your Radio. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, Michelle, you've had quite an amazing gap year. You started in Guatemala, then yeah. moved on to Oaxaca, Mexico, and then just got home um, last week from backpacking in South America for two and a half months. So we have a lot to cover, but I want to kind of start off with learning more about your process of choosing to take a gap year. So can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to take a gap year and what were some of the reasons why you felt it was an important choice for you? Um, Well, I wanted to take a gap year since I was 15, so between freshman and sophomore year. Um, And that mainly stems from uh, a service trip I did, a service learning trip I did to Tanzania. Uh, when I was that age um, in high school, so it was very much towards the beginning of high school that I already knew I was going to take time off afterwards. And it's mainly because I met um, one of my mentors for the trip who had taken a gap year and um, had told me all about how much of a transformative experience it was. And he also did it independently. And based on how much he talked about it after being graduated from college, I knew that this was a really, really great opportunity to, to do something that I had always wanted to do with my life um, and to have a year of free time. Um, just that concept in general, having a whole year, a whole block to do whatever you want to do, um, I realized was a really, really valuable thing. Even, even though at the time I didn't know what I wanted to, I actually thought I wanted to do a full-on structured program just because I was 15 and that's, um, that was my mindset at the time. Um, but I knew that taking that chunk off of time out of my life was really important no matter what I wanted to do. So that's where it stemmed from originally, just having a mentor who had done it, um, and had found it such a valuable experience. 
That's great. And and I remember when you were planning, you know, budgeting and being, you know, fiscally conservative was important to you and your family. And you actually mm-hmm. went out for and, and received a travel access project grant to contribute yeah. to your gap year funding. So tell me a little bit more about the budgeting and how you worked with your parents and, and saved money and, and received money for your gap time and how that all that process went for you. Um, so in terms of financing my gap year, um, in the beginning, I was actually looking at very expensive programs that were roughly the price of college tuition for a year. So we were looking at like 30000 for um, for some seven months. And it didn't, the other thing was it didn't even go into the summer. It stopped at around April, most of these programs, March or April. And I was paying what would be the equivalent of college tuition. Um, so it was like a fifth year of college I was paying for, which made no sense. Um, so I kind of stopped looking at those programs. And then I started looking at well, what if I did things independently? Um, and once I figured out that I wanted to learn Spanish, I started researching Spanish schools and finding the average of, of tuition um, for private lessons. And then I would um, think about the daily costs I would be having, um, whether it be like homestay or when I was out of Spanish school, for example, um, the different internships I was looking at for the second half of my year um, they listed the daily price of living, and I noticed most of them were around $10, $13, $15. So I took an average of the potential internships I might be having. I went online and I googled average price of living for, for example, Oaxaca, Mexico or Arequipa, Peru. Um, you know, how much did groceries cost for a week? How much were people paying for rent living in the city center for a month? Um, and I did some quick math and I came up with a budget and then I gave myself um, a couple hundred dollars buffer each month in case an emergency happened um, or in case I wanted to buy things I hadn't considered. Um, and in the end, I came up with an average per month because some months due to Spanish school were more expensive than others of about a hundred, a thousand, a thousand USD per month. Mm-hmm. And considering I was going to be away for about 10, 11 months, I knew I needed uh, 10,000 USD. Uh, So I had already had quite a bit of money saved up from working um, senior year uh, while studying and during the summer. So I had that money. And then, um, of course, my parents contributed um, and my grandparents helped with a bit of what was missing. And then the scholarship definitely covered a lot of it. Um, So the scholarship I got was 3,000 USD. So that would be roughly three months of my gap year that they're covering, which is the fourth, which is a huge help. Definitely. Yeah. And so as you mentioned before, one of your main gap year goals was becoming fluent in Spanish, which I think it's safe to say you achieved after spending, you know, the better part of 10 months in Latin American and Central American countries. So, you know, tell me a little bit more about Guatemala and that kind of the, the more immersive, you know, particularly focused on language immersion experience that you had and and what you enjoyed about that yeah um so i'm not gonna lie guatemala was in the beginning was very 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 challenging um just because i was all of a sudden dropped off in this completely new environment and i was living with a host family who spoke literally no english i mean they knew how to say hello um simple things but really really zero english um And also at the time, it was low season for the school, so there weren't any other students. There were very, very few students in the school, and the students that were there were senior citizens um, from the States or Canada 
Um, so not exactly the demographic <laughs> that like a recent high school graduate um, is like very comfortable making friends in. Um, so I really, really spent 100% of my energy learning Spanish. Um, and when I first arrived in Guatemala, I actually, because of the, the hurricane that was happening at the time in Houston, um, my bags got delayed and didn't arrive for about four days, four or five days. Mm. Um, so I was stuck with literally zero luggage. I arrived at this family's house with a tiny backpack and almost no things. And they, they told me later that they were so confused um, because <laughs> I was telling them I was going to stay for, for, you know, two months, two and a half months. And I arrived with this tiny backpack and it was rainy season too. So I got caught in um, a flash flood like the second day. Um, came home completely soaked with no change of clothes. Um, so I somehow had to figure out with my very limited Spanish what I had learned in maybe one day of class and Google Translate how to ask for new clothes and how to explain to them what happened. And so I immediately got very close with my host family because of that disaster, um, despite the language differences. Um, but little by little, I picked up Spanish. Each week, I noticed a huge exponential um, improvement. And I also became really, really close with my Spanish teacher. She actually is only about a month younger than me. Hmm. So she was one of my um, fastest friends there in Guatemala, which was really awesome because, you know, she's my teacher and a friend. And that's the best way to learn. Um, definitely. And that's I really definitely cool. would hit roadblocks once every couple weeks where I just felt like I could not get past a certain concept, where I felt like I was making the same mistake over and over. And she wouldn't be afraid to correct my mistakes too, which was very helpful because I know that there were some teachers whose style was a bit different um, and they would be a bit more lenient on mistakes, but she was very strict with me, which I appreciated looking back, but was very frustrating at the time whenever I hit a roadblock. Um, so at the end of 10 weeks of private lessons, I had completed um, the whole, the whole Spanish curriculum and, um, and a family emergency had actually happened with my teacher the last week I was studying. So I had changed teachers, um, and the new teacher I had, we just did not click as well. So I really, really came to appreciate, um, how lucky I got having a teacher that was so good. Um, and so that's when I kind of realized, you know, like this is the universe telling me that that's the end of my Spanish learning experience. <laughs> I had already learned a lot by then. And yeah. it was incredible going from not being able to communicate at all to being able to have full-on conversations about complex ideas in Spanish. That's really neat. And so at now being like a wizened woman who's returning from her gap year, knowing about those first couple weeks and the adjustment, and especially when there's like that language barrier, mm -hmm. I, I certainly remember that from my gap year in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for, for gappers who are a little bit, who know that they might get homesick or might deal with culture shock and how to kind of get past that, that period of time when you feel a little bit overwhelmed? Um, I would just say that no that you learn so much so so much more from difficult experiences and from struggling than from having a good time. Obviously, like we all want to be happy and we all want to have a good time um, on our year off because we've planned so much and we've taken so much time out of our lives to do it. But looking back, I would never ever give up any of those struggles for anything because that's those are the moments during this year where I have grown. Those are the moments that have contributed to me knowing more and becoming a more mature um, adult because of it. So just yeah. know during those times that they're completely necessary 
to enjoy um, other parts of your year later. That's really good advice. That's great. One of the other things that I really thought was neat about your uh, gap experience in Guatemala was your ability to take the time to do art. And I know that you're a pretty, very, yeah. very talented artist and Thank you yeah. painted a lot while you were there. So what? how yeah. did you kind of come to, to carve out time for that? And, um, and also you should t- talk about like the portraits you did there. That was really cool. Yeah. So actually um, for me, painting throughout the year was a really good way um, to get headspace. Because sometimes when I'd be feeling really stuck with Spanish or I'd be feeling really lonely, I always knew that there was that thing that I was very passionate about that I could come back to. And it was almost like meditative for me. Every time I painted something, I realized I would get into this mindset where I was hyper-focused on on my subject that I was painting. And I would think through things while I was painting. Um, So for me, it was almost less of a task um, carving out time. And it was more of like, I would think to do a painting when I really needed it. And I would start painting. I'd feel like, yes, I'd feel so much better about, about whatever I was struggling with. Um, so, and I did have a lot of free time. I realized just going from high school where I had, you know, homework, clubs to lead, um, AP tests, all those things to having just one thing to focus on learning Spanish. I realized I had so much free time on my hands. So that was actually um, not too big of an issue finding that. Um, but yeah, so I did two. Um, portraits there. Um, the first one was of my my little host sister, um, who's ten years old, Alondra, in the uh, the fair of the town which I was saying, which is called Panajacho. So um, every town in Guatemala has a fair each year, and every fair is at a different time um, in the, in the year, and it's celebrating the patron patron saint of the town. Um, and depending on how big the town is, the fair can be quite a big deal. So in Panajachel, there were various Ferris wheels that somehow sprung up out of nowhere. <laughs> um, and like food stands everywhere and like arcade games in the street, foosball in the street. It was really, really cool. So obviously it's like every 10-year-old's dream, this whole situation, no matter where they're from. So um, my host sister would always like, like, Michelle, let's go to the fair today. Let's go to the fair today. Bring me on the Ferris wheel. Bring me on the Ferris wheel. Um, <laughs> and these like were not average Ferris wheels, like nice, slow rides with views and stuff. Like they were very terrifying. They would go quite <laughs> fast and you would feel like you were going to fall out. The first time I went on, I could not stop screaming. And, and there's like a 10 year old next to me, just completely calm. So, um, so every time she was like, let's go to these fairs, I just had this feeling of fear in my heart. And I really, <laughs> so it was, it was quite a conflict for the whole month. But, um, but anyways, like that's, that's what defined that month for me, you know, like having all these arcade games in the street and having this 10 year old trying to drag me on these terrifying Ferris wheels. Um, and I, I just thought it was really funny because that's not what people normally think of when they think oh, I'm spending time abroad in Guatemala. You know, they have very stereotypical views of how it should be. Oh, it's like so hard. You probably don't have this amenity, that amenity. Um, You know, you're probably thinking about how simple but great their lives are. And it's like, no, it's like not that simple. You know, like every culture and every part of the world has special things um, that are unique to them that don't exist in other cultures. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like a full, it's, it's almost exactly like what we have in the States, but just, you know, a different culture with different customs and different things that they look forward to throughout the year. Um, and that was an aspect of everyday life that, um, that I found really beautiful because at the same time you had this fair that that's a very foreign concept to us in the U.S., but you had this 10-year-old, you know, trying to drag me on these Ferris wheels 
which is so typical, you know, like any Mm -hmm. 10-year-old would do that. Um, So I really wanted to capture that in the painting, which is why I, the first portrait I did was of my host sister um, at the fair, you know, looking, picking out which prize she wanted from the arcade game, um, because that was so Guatemalan, but at the same time, that was so universal. Um, And then the second portrait I did was of my host dad, because after I did the first portrait of my host sister, um, you know, the whole family was was like in love with this portrait they they would check on me every single day and be like how's it going while I was painting um Alondra would come and watch me paint um and and so in the end my host dad came up to me after I finished that one and was like look like I've I really really love the painting you did of her and I've been meaning to ask you um like I've always wanted a portrait um done of myself um, so they can use it at my funeral. And I was like, gosh, Angel, I was like, that's so morbid. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I was like, and he was half joking, but I could tell he was being serious. And I was like, I hope you're not thinking of this all the time. And he was like, no, but um, <laughs> but I've just always wanted a portrait in general, you know, not just for my funeral, but I've always wanted a portrait done to have a nice thing for people to remember me by. And I was like, okay. And he was like, I'll pay for it and everything. And I was like, no, 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 like, I don't want you to pay. And also this was getting towards like the end of my stay there. So I was like, well, that'd be a great present to give them um, while I'm going away, um, like going away present. So um, I, I had him choose a picture of himself that he liked, like wearing a shirt that he thought was nice. And, and then I started painting that. Um, and it was just a simple portrait, um, just, you know, shoulders up, like, facing forward, um, simple background. Um, but when I finished it in the end, um, he was so happy to see it. And I ended up, I was walking down the street one day and there just happened to be a man selling picture frames, um, like holding a bunch of picture frames walking around the streets. I was like, oh, awesome, perfect. And I had a picture of the painting on my phone and I had stuff next to it. So I knew how to like roughly how big it was. Um, so and I picked out a frame and I brought it home for them. I put the um, the painting in the frame, and they still have it hung up in their living room. Um, oh, that's really, really cool. happy about it. So yeah, it was Does so it, art was a way to connect with people, which was really awesome. Yeah, that's so cool. And and is is Guatemala similar to like Oaxaca and Mexican culture, where they will then you know like have an ofrenda, where they like will maybe put that portrait someday when he is long gone, um, or is it a little bit different in how they kind of remember their their dead? Um. Yeah. So based on what he was describing he said that um, when somebody passes away they usually put a picture um or a painting um above where the grave is Mm. um and in guatemala um they have these special types of graves that are that are much more personalized than what we have in the states um so they lay flowers sometimes there is a picture of the person um, they put things that the person likes and they decorate it. They paint it with lots of beautiful colors. So I'd mm-hmm. imagine that they might use it like that afterwards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's so neat. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Oaxaca, that's, that is where you went next. And, mm-hmm. um, and Oaxaca is one of my favorite places that I've traveled. It's, it's a really cool Oaxaca city, which is in Oaxaca state in Southern mm-hmm. Mexico. Um, and it's also a very artistic community and has a lot of galleries and amazing places to eat. And it's just yeah. a very vibrant city. <laughs> yeah, and really you went there to intern with a microfinance organization called Envia. So why don't you talk a little bit about that experience and, and how you kind of it, it 
seems like kind of a perfect progression to study study Spanish and then be able to utilize it in the way that you were able to in Oaxaca. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was such an incredible experience um, living in Oaxaca and interning with Envia. I just absolutely loved it. Um, I actually went in with very little expectations. I wasn't really sure um, if the job was going to be exactly what I wanted. I wasn't sure um, if Oaxaca was going to feel so much more different than Guatemala that it felt like I was discovering a new place, but I was just completely wrong, which I'm very glad about. Um, so in terms of Oaxaca, I, there couldn't have been a city that was more perfect for me. There's always things going on. And I realized in Oaxaca that because I come from a very small town, um, I've lived in that very small town of about four or 5,000 people. Um, for the majority of my life. So I always, like leaving that town, I thought, I hate small towns, I hate small places. I want a massive city with a ton of diversity, um, and I don't want to be anywhere near anything that's small. Um, Oaxaca is actually a fairly small city, um, and it's got, it's got really, really rich tradition and culture and less new things and less, you know, diversity in terms of how we think of it in the States. Um, but, and that's, you know, on paper, everything I didn't want, but I realized I loved it. I realized that, um, that I really liked the sense of community. I really liked walking down the street and always bumping into somebody I knew. I really liked meeting somebody new and having them by chance know someone that I work with or something like that. Um, I really liked having these events that posted uh, announcements in the streets that they were going on so you could just show up to this event. Um, out of nowhere and meet really great new people um, and I really liked everything being so close and walkable so that sense of community I never really appreciated until I got to Oaxaca and also like you were saying there's art literally everywhere there's always galleries going on and the food is incredible I don't think I ever had a bad meal in Oaxaca and if I had a bad meal it's probably because I cooked and messed it up um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a really incredible city. And in terms of the internship, it was exactly what I was looking for. I actually, um, I, when I got to Mexico, my Spanish was, was good to communicate, but my accent wasn't very good. I would mess up in grammar quite often while I was speaking. Um, and I still have improvement in terms of my accent and grammar while I'm speaking. Um, but you know, that, that goes for anybody who's learning a second language. Um, but when I got to Mexico, it was still very much a work in progress. And it was like almost like learning Spanish all over again because people in Mexico talk with so much slang, like so much <laughs> um, to the point where I just could not understand straight up what anybody was saying because there was so many foreign words in it. Um, and they do talk quite, quite fast. Um, mm. So the first whole month was just adjusting to that. And then I actually came out of Mexico um, speaking such Mexican Spanish that people thought I was from Mexico, even though I look Asian. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and yeah, using my Spanish, um, actually using it instead of learning it, using it to, to talk about subjects at work, like women's empowerment, like how we were going to measure women's empowerment, um, talking about the structure of a program and how it fits into our mission statement, um, why we do things, and um, how to organize um, our programs to make them function better, stuff like that, um, like more complicated subjects, um, really helped me learn in the process of using Spanish, um, a more advanced level, which was really awesome. And then also, um, 
like beyond just language, uh, working in an organization and seeing what makes a good NGO was really, really helpful. Um, so my main contribution in, in Envia was assessing the, their, their English program. Um, because even though I had no ex former experience in impact assessment and, in, um, and research, I did have a lot of experience working as a volunteer English teacher in various English programs. Um, so I, I knew what resulted in a good English program that had kids coming out that, were, that had actual um, utilizable English skills. Um, I knew um, what it meant for the teachers to have a well-organized program. Um, so I started that assessment. And then in that process, I also learned, you know, it's important to have your programs line up with your mission statement. And that was a big problem with the English program. Like nobody could really tell you where to fit into the mission of NVIA because our main function in the organization was microloans and business education um, and using sustainable and responsible tourism to finance all that. So English kind of was this weird limb. And um, in the end, we realized we didn't even know the mission statement of the organization and it was kind of, we were kind of having mission drift so mm -hmm. we figured out as a team and it was a fairly small organization mind you like there was only five um, paid staff and a small group of volunteers that were in the office every day um, so we figured out like what the mission statement was um, and then used the mission statement that we decided on um, to make a logic model for the English program about how it connects to everything um, so it was really, really rewarding in the end being able to be a part of that and to have been, um, to help everything make more sense within the organization, to help the volunteers that came feel like they knew what their purpose was. And obviously when you know what your purpose is, you, you, um, you execute that purpose um, a lot better. So yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, that is that is really neat. And for listeners at home, if you ever make it to Oaxaca, one of the really cool things that Envia does is they do actual microfinance tours, um, which was something that Michelle worked on, mm -hmm. which they actually allow you to go out into the outlying towns and villages outside of Oaxaca and meet some of the beneficiaries of the microloans. So a, a, a loan tour would consist of visiting a few different women's owned businesses in, in these cities um, and I was able to go on one when I was in Oaxaca and I visited a shopkeeper and a restaurant owner where we had lunch and a weaver and it was really really neat to know that the that the money from our tour was you know pretty much directly feeding into this system of giving these women opportunity to run and own their own businesses and it's a really neat organization that um that you can, you know, intern and volunteer through, but you can also just attend and support the organization as a visitor to Oaxaca, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Very neat. So, um, so while you were in Oaxaca, you started planning your onward travels. So one thing that I'm curious about, because I know that you always wanted to backpack, but you ended up backpacking for quite a bit. And how did yeah. that planning process kind of emerge as you were in Oaxaca? And, and how did you choose to go to Colombia and Peru? Um, well, when I was in Oaxaca, the cool thing about being settled in um, a city like that for, for four months was I met a lot of people passing through that were travelers, and I met a lot of people who had lived abroad in other countries. Um, so actually, two of uh, my co closest friends who were co-workers with me at the organization had been to Colombia. One of them had just come from um, taking six months, yeah, studying abroad for six months in Bucaramanga 
and she absolutely loved it and she would always tell me about Colombia and then a different coworker had lived in Medellin um, quite a couple of years back um, but he also told me about how much he loved Colombia um, and I had met some travelers going through who had mentioned Colombia as well so I was always hearing Colombia which wasn't on my radars at all before um, and everybody would rave about it um, and I knew next to nothing about the country other than it was dangerous um, before. Uh, so I started researching it um, and and yeah, I never heard a negative thing about Colombia. So I was like, I have to go check out what all the hype is about. So that's how Colombia got on my list. And then um, Peru, because you know, I feel like Peru is the big hotspot for all of South America for backpackers. Um, it's almost like a rite of passage for backpackers in South America. You have to go to Peru. Um, you know, Machu Picchu, all that. And I knew there was incredible trekking in nature there. So that's how Peru got on my list. And um, and I had originally wanted to go to Bolivia because that was another country that I heard a lot of a lot of incredible things about. Um, and I actually never made it to Bolivia because, you know, I would I would always be sitting there in my apartment doing the plans for South America. I would be planning things literally day by day. I'm going to spend three days in this city and I'm going to spend four days in this city. I'm going to do this, 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 this. And I had everything very meticulously planned out by day, knowing in the back of my mind that it just was not going to go at all like how I planned it, which it didn't. Um, <laughs> so the planning was, was useful in that I researched stuff and I found cool things to do in each country, but really useless in terms of the fact that you never know how things are going to play out and how you're going to like each place. But that's a really good way of planning, actually, because you want to be knowledgeable about the places that you know you're interested in and how to get from place to place if you choose to do that. And then you're you have once you have that knowledge kind of in the bank, then you're able to be more spontaneous on the ground. Yeah, so, yeah, that's and also it's important to know kind of where you shouldn't go and where you yeah. should avoid. And, <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Um, or if there's like modes of transport that are known to be unsafe and things yes. like that. So <laughs> doing that kind of ahead of time research um, is is good because it lays the groundwork for making kind yes, of those fly by night decisions. Um, so we could spend, you know, I think three hours, you know, really unpacking all of the yeah. things you did on this multi-month backpacking tour. One of the things I guess I'm curious about before we actually launch into some of the highlights of it is what your parents, how your parents felt about you traveling on your own as a young female and what you may have done to alleviate some of their fears or if you have any strategies to share with other people who might be wanting to do a similar thing. Yeah, of course. I think um, the fact that the big backpacking trip was at the very end of my year was huge for my parents. They would never, ever in a million years have let me do that um, right off the bat in September or even right after learning Spanish, like in January. They would have never, ever in a million years let me do that. But um, they actually, they came to visit me over April break in Mexico. And I feel like that was very, very reassuring for them. So I would recommend oh, cool. anybody um, looking to take a gap year um, to be open to the idea of their parents or their family visiting them um, during whenever they have time during the year um, to see them on the ground in action, you know, because because my parents could see that I was living in an apartment by myself. They could see that I was cooking every day and going grocery shopping. They could see, um, you know, like me interacting with my roommates who are both Mexican, speaking to them in Spanish. Um, and they're also both um, quite older than me. They're in their late 20s, you know. They're full-on functioning adults. And I think my parents having, for them, seeing, seeing me, you know, like interact with them and like be such good friends with them, 
um, with people so much older than me and in Spanish as well, um, just really showed them how, how far I'd come in that year and how much they could trust me to be an adult and how they could treat me as an adult because I was one, you know? Yeah, um, so I think cool. that really helped them. And also, of course, um, you know, when they say that we would, we would like for you to call us, you know, once every two weeks, text us once every couple of days, um, just to send us some pictures, let us know what you're doing. You know, don't fight that. <laughs> At first in Guatemala, when they said that, I thought that a bit because I was like, you know, like I'm living with a family. Um, I'm really trying to immerse myself. Like I don't want to be like using English. Like I want to be full on Spanish. And that, you know, made them very, I could feel that they were a bit nervous with that. But um, when I went off backpacking, I was like, yeah, sure. You know, like I'll text you once every couple of days with pictures and I'll call you once every like week or so. And in the end, it was like actually like me wanting to text them and call them more than they wanted to contact me. I'd be like, okay, I'm going on a trek now for five days. I won't be responding to my phone. And they like wouldn't reply. And then I'd come back <laughs> and I'd have a message, like cool period. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> so they were very comfortable with it by the end. Very, very comfortable. Oh my gosh, that's great. Yeah, and it's different for every family. So I think that it's important for people to be, you know, flexible and see what works for everybody. I know that one student I worked with a couple years ago, she actually like created a PowerPoint presentation of her itinerary and kind of presented it to her parents as, you know, this is what I thought through and worked out. And other times parents want to see kind of a play-by-play of what your um, plans are in like Mm -hmm. a spreadsheet form. And if they change, that's fine, but they kind of want to know where you are. So there's lots of ways of, of... making everybody feel comfortable. So that's, that's great that that worked out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, Columbia is a place that's definitely on one of the tops, you know, top of my list. And it was cool hearing yeah. about all the places you got to visit. So um, let's just try to do like a highlight reel of like the top, like three, maybe cities, places, experiences of that, of that period of time. I know it was a couple of weeks long, so that might be hard to distill down. But like, yeah. if you were talking to somebody who was about to travel to Columbia and they had limited amount of time, what would you say you have to experience there? Um, well, I would definitely say um, the whole uh, like department of Antioquia, I really, really loved. Mm-hmm. So that includes the coffee region. It's a lot of mountains, really, really green, such a green area. Um, and kind of misty while I was there. Um, and the capital of Colum- of Antioquia uh, is Medellin. Mm-hmm. And um, when you go to Medellin, you'll realize that it's, it's almost like a little world in and of itself. Um, and they actually have, have petitioned to break away from Colombia um, historically. So they feel very special and unique, you know, and it is a very special place within Colombia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like an incredible city, Medellin. Um, and it's kind of like in a valley, so you always feel like you're in a bowl, just kind of surrounded by these red um, brick uh, houses. So uh, that's a really, really cool feeling. And also their metro system. Um, I never thought I would talk about a metro system as a, as a big hot spot to see in a city, but it's just the most beautiful metro I've ever seen that includes cable hmm. cars. So you pay less than a dollar to take this beautiful cable car ride like up the up the mountain of this of this valley that the city is in and you're passing all the flavelas and you get to see all this beautiful graffiti on the way um and it's it's just a really incredible city with a really incredible story um because they did go through a very dark period um in recent history just a couple decades ago um and if you talk to anybody they'll have a very strong opinion about it um and yeah, and then outside of Medellin, there's like little pueblos. Um, my favorite one was Jardin. 
and you go and it's just very very tranquil and once again you're also like nestled in the mountains surrounded by green and there's a lot of beautiful hikes around that area so that was definitely my top in Colombia um and then other than that I really also enjoyed the desert in the northernmost part and it's actually the most northern part of South America it's called La Guajira Um, and it's just barren, barren desert. It's nothing like Antioquia. There's no green. It's all just dead, um, which doesn't sound too appealing, but it was quite cool because <laughs> um, it's just flat, flat desert and really, really strong wind. Like you feel the wind. It's a very big presence um, in your life when you're there. Um, and the desert goes straight into the ocean. Um, it's just really, really beautiful. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Mm-hmm. So you traveled overland a lot and that yes. was mostly how you made your way through peru right did you take yes. any planes in peru yeah um or uh, actually in peru i took i didn't take any planes yeah, um mostly boats it sounds like yeah mostly boats to cross the border but i did have to take a plane um from colombia to get to in colombia to get to the southern tip in the amazons mm-hmm. just because to get to the amazons um in colombia you can't even take a boat to get to there because there's just such a big blackout zone in the middle where there's just no roads, no no boats, nothing. Um, right. Just pure rainforest. So I did have to take a boat to get down, down to the Amazons in Colombia. But from there, I took boats, yeah. Yeah, so that that is one of the coolest, I think, stories of your journey is yeah. kind of how you connected from place to place by boat and especially slow boat. Um, the first boat that I took was a ferry so that one was was a little bit more on the expensive side and it was quite nice it was a new ferry actually um quite new to the area and so it was fast but it wasn't uncomfortable because the fast boats are notorious for being very very uncomfortable um and so you have two options in the amazons um other than this new ferry which is a bit of an exception um so you have the fast boats which are small um it kind of looks like a very, very large canoe um, and with a motor in the back and a cover on top. Um, and they're nicknamed Pecky Peckies because of the sound that they make. <laughs> and um, it's actually quite loud, which is what makes it so uncomfortable. And it's a bit bumpy too, because it's going so fast. So it's like Pecky 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 and you're like speeding through the river. Um, and then the other option is a slow boat, which they call a lancha. Um, And that's a big, massive boat, which usually carries um, cargo on top of carrying people. So the first floor will be will just be pure cargo. And then the second floor is is just empty, completely empty. And people string up hammocks um, that they stay in uh, for three, four, five, six days um, on this slow boat, depending on how far you're going. And the second floor is also um, empty and you string up hammocks. So I think that was... That was definitely my one of my, my favorite boat experience that I had taking the slow boat um, for three days um, just because you really, really get a feel of, you know, everyday life on the Amazon. Nothing that's sensationalized, nothing that's super exciting. You know, you're not seeing jaguars. You're not passing jaguars on this river. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not like that. I mean, you're also not passing these like remote villages where people still hunt with blow darts you know like that's not what it is it's just like it's just true reality of what life is in the amazons now in 2018 and that i really loved like we passed villages that were quite remote that were 
you know, they didn't have internet. They only had electricity a couple hours per day. But, you know, people were living their lives. You could see that they, you know, they had agriculture going on. And, you know, you talk to these people and they'd be like, yeah, so we have um, our own crops of yucca, um, which is cassava root, um, of corn, of beans, of all these things, of plantains, and we eat it. Um, when in the marketplace it doesn't sell for a lot of money and then when the value goes up in the marketplace we sell it to buy other things that we need like grains for example you know mm. um, just basic everyday living like that and they would also say you know we we eat a lot of fish because that's what we have available to us from the river um, these are the different ways that we fish you know we use the net fishing rod spear um, these are the type of fish that we have accessible to us these are the ways that we cook it um, and then also like seeing you know, how trade went. Like, the cargo boat would stop at a small village. They would hand us something in a mysterious parcel. We would hand them something in a mysterious parcel. It's just seeing, like, everyday life and how it goes mm. like that. Um, and we actually did see some animals along the way just because we were, um, like, sitting, you know, uh, looking at the riverbank, like, trying to spot something. So we saw pink river dolphins at one point, and then we passed a tree with some monkeys in it at another point. So that was exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you did a bunch of trekking towards like the second half of of the time in Peru. So, um, I, I, you know, I kind of want to gloss over the Machu Picchu experience because a lot of people do that and will, you know, I think that that's something that is easy, easy enough to kind of plot out. Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious to, for you to share a little bit more about your, uh, like the kind of off the beaten path trekking experiences you had. Um, can you talk a little about how those came about and why you'd recommend them to travelers who have a little bit more time on their hands? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I actually got really lucky in that I was able to do um, two out of the three tracks I did in Peru independently, like without a a tour company. And obviously, like, I I was really glad for the first trek I did with a tour company just because I'd never done it before. I'd never hiked for that many consecutive days, um, doing that many kilometers per day either. Um, And I didn't have a tent. I didn't have a sleeping bag or any of that. So it it, it was nice the first time doing it with a tour and having them take care of it. Also, being able to hike um, with a really, really light load and having the donkeys take most of my stuff. But in the end, I really, really did prefer the two treks I did independently. Um, And those two treks I was able to do independently um, largely because I had found um, a group of guys I had met in Arequipa, um, which is a city in southern Peru um, that I was in before I got to Cusco, where a lot of treks are based out of. Um, and I'd overheard them talking about how they want to do treks independently. And I knew that I was fully capable of doing it independently by myself. But personally, I prefer, you know, going with a group, having that sense of camaraderie um, when things are going a bit rougher. Um, and also just for my personal comfort, like I, I wanted to do it with other people. So I really lucked out and I met that group. And, um, and so once we got to Cusco, we started researching. We started asking around... Um, asking people in hostels, um, oh, have you done the Tokikirao track? Have you done the Salkantai track to Machu Picchu by yourself? Um, and we eventually did find some, some people who were good sources of, of updated information because that's the best thing you can do when you're doing something like that independent um, that requires research before you go, just asking people on the ground because they're going to have the most up-to-date information and they're usually coming from the same place that you are you know, like tight budget, like might not necessarily have all the things they need. Um, so in the end, we got the information that we needed. And then um, we found a place that rented um, outdoor gear. 
So they rented, so we, we rented tents from them, we rented sleeping bags. My friend even rented hiking shoes and a jacket because he didn't have that. Um, and, you know, we negotiated the price because we were um, quite a big group and we were renting so many stuff. So we ended up getting up a couple, a couple things for free too, you know, like the mats, um, the hiking poles. Uh, so negotiating is definitely huge in Peru. Like never take the first price that they're, that they're telling you because you can almost always get it down for what it's actually worth. Um, and, and yeah, so from there, we, for the, for the Machu Picchu trek, I chose, well, we chose the Salkantay, um, trail because the Inca trail, which is the one that most people think of, you actually have to book months in advance and you cannot do that one independently, um, just because of all the restrictions of protecting you know the ruins along the way um which makes complete sense but we didn't really want such a grindy experience because first of all we wanted to go at our own pace and second of all um you know it feels much more um you know intense the whole experience of doing it yourself feels more adventurous um and the salkantai trek is known for the nature that you pass along the way so there's this salkantai pass which is the highest point you go through at about 4,600 meters i believe um, and you, you pass by this beautiful, beautiful snowy mountain called Salkantai. It's massive. And, um, and you're really high up and it's really freezing and there's a lot of snow. And then the same day, um, you, you have a really big elevation loss, um, continuing the hike and you actually get into the, the forest, um, which is really cool. So there's a lot of change in scenery and ecosystems, which is really beautiful. Um. And then in the end, you end up in Machu Picchu, of course. Um, but we did we did have to get the tickets for Machu Picchu ahead of time. And that's a big advice I'd give to anybody looking to do the trek independently. Just go like weeks in advance to get the ticket. Um, and you do have to know the exact date you're going to go to get the ticket. And once you get the ticket, you can't change the date. It's quite strict. Um, but me and my friend had gone to the office like a couple hours too late and we almost didn't get the ticket to enter the site at the same time that the rest of our friends got it um and this was like a week in advance before we had started the trek um so definitely recommend planning ahead of time for Machu Picchu just because it's so popular right right and what was the name of the other one the one that you the other hike that you did independently that was kind of less known as yeah. a ruins yeah the other hike that I did independently was called Chokikiro um and I actually liked that one much better than I liked Machu Picchu just because there were less people. Um, and that one only gets about 20 to 30 visitors per day, whereas Machu Picchu gets thousands of visitors per day. Mm, right. um, and that one, you don't have to buy a ticket ahead of time. You, you actually, you just start the hike. And then when you're getting close to the ruins, there's a control post and you stop at the control post and, um, you know, if you're if you're a regular foreign tourist, you pay something like twenty dollars, I believe. But because I'm a student, I only paid ten. So mm. I paid ten dollars, got into these incredible ruins that are actually bigger than Machu Picchu. Um, it's just not completely excavated yet. But once it's completely excavated, it will be much bigger than Machu Picchu, and you can see um, like a snowy mountain in the background, and there's this beautiful valley on the other side. Um, so I definitely really, really love those ruins and yeah. I recommend it. 
And we'll link to that stuff in the show notes so that yeah. people who are interested can see a picture and, and sure. see the spelling of it. Because yeah, yes. <laughs> Peruvian spelling and, uh, uh, and you know, indigenous spelling is always a little bit tricky. Exactly. Um, so um, now that you're, you know, wrapping up your gap time, what do you feel like your personal biggest takeaway from this whole year has been? Um, wow. So there's, there's a lot of takeaways I have, but um, I think... The biggest one is that you should you should always be very open and that sounds very general but by open I mean like not judging anybody first of all because every single person I've met this year I of course harbored judgments about them initially it's something that you can't help but to do as a human being you know judge people and think you know them um, and every single person without fail has shown me that they're way more complicated than I thought they were, that they're somebody completely different than who I thought they were. And if it's somebody that I I thought I wasn't going to get along with in the beginning, I'm like, oh, I don't have much in common with them, um, either because where they come from or, you know, how, how they seem to act, their age maybe. Almost always wrong. You know, if you are actually genuinely open to people, you'll find that you get along with almost everybody in this world. And people are so much more similar and so much more complicated and interesting than you'll ever think they they were initially. And the same goes with places. You know, you arrive in a place having heard stuff about it, but every single person judges a place and characterizes a place based on their personal experience, which is a have, has a lot to do with who they are as well. So, you know, I would always say, like, stay open. And whenever people tell you um, advice about a place or they tell you tips for a place or how a place is, um, it's always more reflective of who they are than what that place is um so you should always go see things for yourself and go in with a very open mind and also um open to to you know the universe in general you know when things happen you don't have to categorize it as oh this is a bad thing that happened to me or oh it's such bad luck that this happened because i found that every single time something happened that frustrated me every single time i was going through a rough patch and nothing was working out um, after a while, you know, after a couple days or even maybe weeks, I would look back and I'd be like, wow, actually all those good things came out of that bad experience, you know? Like because I got food poisoning and wasn't able to do this thing, I was able to hike um, a volcano and see these incredible explosions and see like a, you know, um, comet shower while a volcano was exploding, like insane <laughs> stuff like that. Like I would have never been able to see that if I hadn't gotten food poisoning a week earlier and not been able to do a bunch of other things, um, you know, because of that, I had time to do something else I ended up really, really enjoying. So just being open in general and not making judgments about situations, about people, about places, about anything. Yeah, I think that's definitely a big thing that I came out of this year with. Very good advice. Yeah. And I'll, I'll also link to some of your blog posts for the Travel Access Project because you write yeah. a little bit about that and yeah. discovering like the definition, your definition of happiness mm -hmm. and things like that. So that was that's also really interesting to hear your perspective on that stuff. Mm -hmm. So so one of the things that we always do to wind down an interview is what we call popcorn questions. So these are just going to be okay. kind of more more rapid fire quick yes. questions about different things that you experienced this year. And um, yeah, they can be just kind of as quick as you can remember them anyway, <laughs> and, um, just to kind of add, get a, get a little bit more information out of you before we wrap up. But, yes. um, okay. So first question is what was your favorite food from Oaxaca? 
Oh, my favorite food from Oaxaca was definitely emoladas. So it's like these, they're like these rolled up tortillas. They usually give you like three rolled up tortillas and they have stuffing. There's like chicken or, or maybe just cheese. And then they pour this sauce called black mole over it. And black mm. mole is just the most incredible sauce. It has like 50 million ingredients and is stewed for like so long. One of the, the, the most key ingredients, chocolate, like dark, right. dark cacao, um, and it's just so delicious. And it's, I can't, I can never reproduce a mole no. here in the States no. like you get in Oaxaca. I mean, even though I, I bought back all the sauces and yeah. ingredients, I like hid it all in my bags and yeah. it's just not the same, oh, you know, whoops. it's, yeah, it's, it's, you just have to experience it there. Yes. Uh, good choice. Okay, cool. So number two is what was your most essential piece of gear for backpacking in South America? Oh God, my shoes. Mm. My shoes were such a plus. I had um, Merrill Moab's. And I wore them literally every single day. And they're waterproof as well. Um, so it doesn't mean if you like stick your foot in a river, it's not going to get wet. But it's like I never had to deal with wet feet while trekking. Um, just because like whenever it rained or I stepped in puddles and stuff, like my shoes really held up. They were really amazing. Nice. Okay, cool. All right, number three. I know that you, um, not only on the slow boat, but you also did the, a canoe trek, which you didn't even touch on in Lagunas oh, yes. in Peru. And I want to know what the coolest animal you saw on that, not not counting the almost jaguar, oh, which God. I know was kind of That's a missed a opportunity. Subject, yes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, of the animals you did see, what was the what was the most incredible to see in the wild? Um, I think my favorite one to see in the wild were probably, um, let's see. I think it was the paiche actually. And I actually surprised myself saying that just because I saw so little of it, but it's like this massive, massive fish, like borderline river monster. Um, it's bigger than a dolphin. Um, and I was more excited seeing it than I was seeing the dolphins. Um, we had saw a bunch of other stuff too, like river otters, sloths, like monkeys, everything. But those like, you know, those are animals that like, you know, exist. Like this paiche, I did not know existed before I went into this jungle tour. <laughs> And when I saw it, it like leaped, kind of like leaped out of the water. It was just like this massive body with these massive scales, like these massive scales, like the size of my hand almost. Wow. And it just looked like a massive like river monster coming out. And I could tell it was really big, even though I only saw like its back. But I think that was the most, that was my favorite thing I saw. <laughs> Wow, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, it's sometimes it's often like the most surprising things that are like like lodged themselves in your yeah, memory. Exactly. So that makes sense. Um, all right, what was uh, your like the best resource for doing all this research and planning? And like, was there a website that you really um, gravitated towards, or you know, where what what about the on in the online world? What was the best um, place that you found information? Oh, in the online world. Um... I would just say Googling things, but I found I always came back to two websites, which was uh, Along Dusty Roads and The Culture Trip. Mm -hmm. Those Great. were the two like blogs I always somehow bumped into, but just mm -hmm. Googling things like backpacking Colombia, backpacking Peru, right. um, trekking this by yourself. Yeah. Cool. All right. And then, all right, last, last one. What is your uh, best or, <laughs> I don't know, most uh, creative way of saving money on the road? Or, or an instance uh -huh. in which you really, like, feel proud about how you were able to be frugal while traveling. Okay. Um, well, a big, big, big tip in South America and in, in Mexico, actually, is they have, um, for, for lunch, they always have this. For dinner sometimes, they have a thing called menu de día, 
so like menu of the day which mm-hmm. they they just make a massive massive pot of whatever they chose to make and then soup and a drink and if you get this menu of the day you don't really have a lot of options unfortunately if you're vegetarian it's a bit hard um but it's literally like two three four dollars maybe and you get a complete lunch with a soup a main dish um like a protein a grain you know salad and a drink um so always ask for that instead of ordering off the actual menu nice that's great advice awesome Oh, thank you so much, Michelle, for sharing this. I feel like there, awesome. this interview is chock full of such good information and um, and very inspirational. You had a really amazing year. I think it's I think thank your you. intrepid spirit is is really fun and engaging and inspirational. So thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, listeners, you can uh, find Margot and I a lot of places. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Gap Year Radio or online at gapyearradiopodcast.com. Feel free to email us your Gap Year questions or comments about the show at gapyearradio at gmail.com. And you can download the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you have a moment, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so more people can discover the show. And uh, Michelle, your last duty as a guest on the show is we like to do our sign off in foreign languages. So I I know that um, with Mexican Spanish having a lot of colorful phrases and things like that, is there like a good slang way to say goodbye or see you later or thank you that you that you can share with us? Um, Most of the Mexican colorful language is not exactly PG. So (laughs) so I'll just say it in general Spanish. Um, but yeah, they like to say chow, um, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. nos vemos, um, que le vaya bien, have yeah. a good Did one. you ever hear the, the, like, the one that I heard once was walk on the shady side of the street? Is that something that they say in Oaxaca too? Or is <laughs> that, is that? I've heard that, but that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that was a really, I forget how to say it in Spanish, and, uh, the woman who taught it to me was Italian, so now I forget if it was uh-huh, uh-huh. Italian or Spanish, but anyway. Um, okay, so yeah, so choose one and we'll, I'll try to say it with you. <laughs> um, chao, nos vemos. Chao, los vemos. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. Bye.